Welcome back to the Expanding Brain Podcast, where we look at all things cognitive and cultural and explore connections between science and society. I'm your host, Akshata. And I'm your permanent guest host, Christian. And today's episode is something really fun, really interesting. It was actually something related to this topic was suggested to us by our mutual friend from high school, Robert. And he sent me a message and he was like, y'all should do an episode. It was like about unconscious memory or like body memory, which is a really cool topic. There's a lot there. And in my research into that topic, I kind of found myself in a rabbit hole about the phenomenon of choking under high pressure situations. So, you know, to define what this phenomenon is, when you're highly skilled at some kind of task, be it something like sports related or mental or anything, but you get into a high pressure situation and you completely like are unable to function and your performance goes badly, that phenomenon is called choking. And I am familiar with it in my real life, but also in watching people do it in sports. And so finding research about it was actually really fun. And I was excited to get into it. Christian, when you, when I proposed this episode idea to you, what were your, what were your thoughts? What, what's your experience with choking been like? <laughs> I mean, I mean, I don't, I, I feel like I'm not much of a choker to be quite honest with you. I would agree. I would agree. <laughs> like in the activities that solid. I do. Yeah, 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 yeah. If anything, I would say I'm I'm the opposite of a choker. I'm sometimes a, a clutch time performer, but only in quiz bowl mm-hmm. at times. At times, yes. Um, but outside of that, you know, I see a lot of choking occur in my favorite sport, basketball. So it, it you know, going through the sources that we're going to talk to today, it was very interesting to sort of think about the research that was being done and then apply it retroactively to the sort of famous instances of choking that I've seen in sports. So I think you know. It's a very interesting episode that we have here today. Yeah, I'm I'm really excited for that because I'm a little bit newer to basketball than Christian is. So I don't have any of this like history with knowing like big Super important great. moments you're, in basketball. You're not that much newer. You're not that much newer. But maybe okay. if any of our friends who are listening to this, um, they know that in like our friend group of people who care about basketball, I'm like the newbie. But I do I I am not a newbie when it comes to the brain. So it is also really fun to me to like like you said, retroactively apply this stuff to sports. And also I will, there's a lot here about like cognition and study design and stuff. So feel free to interrupt me and like jump in with like a story or something you remember from some instance in sports. Um, I think that'll be really useful to give people an end to the science, but also break up all of the information. So just for a little bit of background, let's talk about what happens to someone's performance when they encounter pressure. So this information is from the introduction of our first source, which is by Lewis and Linder. And the authors kind of give us a little bit of theory on what happens in performance under pressure. So the early theories of this subject were centered around this idea of drive. So this is the drive theory of performance. And the general idea is that For a well-learned task, if you increase arousal, so by arousal, I mean like psychological arousal, which is alertness, attentiveness, awareness, just like your responsiveness to stimuli. When you increase that, the performance will improve. So the early theory suggested that pressure is overall good for performance. And that's if a task is well-learned, if you're like good at a task, if you've practiced it. 
That theory states that if the task isn't well learned, more drive will lead to worse performance. Um, so it's a, it's a pretty straightforward theory, like more pressure, more drive, better performance. If you're skilled. If you're skilled, exactly. And what we were just talking about, which is choking, is a counterexample of this theory. Like this theory does not account for choking. So I think there's research that in baseball or basketball championships, quote, the home team is significantly more likely to lose the decisive game than it is to lose earlier home games in the series. Um, a similar pattern also holds for individual performances. Um, this is outside of sports, but there's a lot of research on testing anxiety. Um, so even people who are extremely adept at whatever they're learning can have a lot of problems performing under pressure in like a testing environment. This is like exceedingly true for me. Like I, so in my, in my real job life, I'm a mathematician and I am pretty decent outside of a testing environment. And during a testing environment, I completely flop and forget everything I've learned and trained for, except for this last exam that I took. The last exam that I took is like the first time I've done well on an exam in grad school. And I actually did like go into it kind of thinking like, this is clutch time. Like I went into it with like a sports mentality and I kind of nailed it. So like cognitive behavioral therapy is just like thinking of little ways to trick your brain into doing what you want it to do. But so, I, I do go ahead. I was going to say, so like going into like this latest exam, you thought of yourself as, as like, oh, I'm Jamal Murray in the bubble. You know, like, literally, I'm literally yeah. Michael Jordan about to take this uh, functional analysis midterm. Um, yeah, it, it was it was a good little it was a good little switch. I did not experience choking, which is what I usually experience. So that was the early theory of performance under pressure, this drive theory. So with these examples of choking, you can kind of modify the drive theory to center more on attention. So the image I want people to picture in their brains is kind of this like upside down or inverted U shape where increasing drive and increasing pressure helps performance up to some like maximal point and then beyond that it falls off. And the explanation there is the more pressure you're experiencing or the more drive you have, it narrows the field of your attention. It makes you like focus in on fewer cues and less information. So like in the rising part of the U, this can be really helpful because you start like screening out extraneous information. You start only locking in on the things that matter. But in the falling part of the U, this can get problematic with too much pressure where you start screening out things that are actually important and you lose, you lose the ability to like react to like changes in stimuli because you're like too zoned in. So this, this inverted U model of performance under pressure seems to be a little bit more stable than just like more pressure, better performance. And it really does highlight how attention is very key for this whole process. As we're going to talk about more in the episode, like how our attentional systems work and relate to both pressure and choking is like very key to all of this research. So, okay. So we've established that like attention is like a really important factor into whether or not choking occurs. But I, I sort of like want to dive a little bit deeper into that. Can you sort of explain to us, Akshata, the two sort of competing theories about how inter how attention interacts with the choking phenomenon? The first study that we looked at basically gives us two modes of thinking about why choking occurs. So the first idea that we're going to come back to a lot in this episode is the theory of self-focused attention. 
So previous research tells us that like things that increase performance pressure also increase how much focus like the subject pays to themselves. So things that increase pressure that could be like having an audience, ego, uh, competition, punishments, rewards, consequences for your actions. All of these things increase your self-focus. There's also research about over-motivation, which is kind of related to this, where when you're like working extra hard in a task, it can sometimes lead to worse performance. It's kind of like you're trying too hard or you're doing too much. When you're over-motivated, that can be because there's lots of internal pressure to do well, which leads to this increase in like self-focus. So the question is, why is this self-focus bad? So the original proposer of this model, I think, is someone called Baumeister a while ago before this paper. But it tells us that self-focus is bad because it interferes with more automatic processes in our brain. So once a task becomes automated, say like shooting free throws or uh, putting a golf ball, which will come up quite a lot in the rest of the episode, once these tasks become automatic, they no longer need conscious attention. They kind of just happen in your muscle memory or your procedural memory, to use that term. So say you've gotten really good at shooting free throws and there's really high pressure. Like say you're down two, it's the fourth quarter, someone fouls you and you need to make both of these free throws to tie. That's a lot of pressure. And instead of letting your natural muscle memory just like carry through with the process and shoot them naturally, you're attending to the the implicit steps. You're like in your head focusing on the steps and not letting it just happen automatically. And that messes up the, the implicit process. So that's kind of this idea of how the self-focus can lead to choking. Yeah, I think, I think this particular uh, theory... Um, makes a lot of intuitive sense for athletes, you know, particularly, obviously, for basketball. You know, I a lot of times when I see sort of analysts uh, talking about basketball and they're analyzing a particularly bad play from a player, sometimes I'll hear them say, oh, you can tell this particular player, they're not, you know, they're thinking instead of just acting on instinct, you know? Right. I think that ties in a lot to what you were just saying, where, you know, if you're thinking about stuff, that sort of level of thinking is probably a result of that increased level of self-awareness where um, let's say, you know, you're a basketball player and you have to make a pass, you know, um, underneath a low pressure situation, odds are you can make a particular read and pass the ball and make the correct play almost automatically. Like, I think you see that in, you know, very highly skilled players like Nicole Jokic, LeBron James, obviously, uh, like Chris Paul, you know, some of the greatest passers in the game. Um, but with people who maybe have like a little bit less skill or where maybe they have like less experience and things aren't, they're not like trained to be automatic at like these, this sort of level of quick decision-making. I mean, like when you look at their faces, you can literally see the gears turning in their head where they're trying to like evaluate the options and everything like that. That's something you don't want to happen. You don't want to see a player uh, sort of have the gears turning in their head. You want process and the read of the game to be as automatic as possible so right exactly I think, I think this particular self-focus theory makes a lot of sense yeah there are like details of this theory i'm curious about too like the theory talks about how the presence of an audience can increase self-awareness and make things go worse and it makes me think of uh like bubble basketball which i think is a little bit of a counter example to this so if people don't know during like the height of the pandemic 
when they like stopped the NBA for a while, they brought it back um, by having everyone like quarantine in Disney World. Um, and they played all the games there. Um, and like players weren't allowed to like leave. And like there were all these like restrictions and there were no fans. That was the big thing is that there were no fans. At some point they like zoomed fans in. Um, yeah, yeah. They, they zo- <laughs> yeah, there were fans on screens. And then I think at a certain point they did allow in like family members and stuff like that. Uh, into the bubble uh-huh. of the basketball players. But at the very beginning, it was just the players, just the staff, and that was it. it was yeah, and it was really weird to watch because it was, like, fully silent. And I know that players yeah. have talked about how, like, weird and unsettling it was. And I know that, like, you know, musicians and, like, theater performance, theater performers, like, during the, like, pandemic talked about how hard it was to play without an audience. And you were going to be talking about how, like, you know, an audience or just like increased pressure can lead to choking. But I would be curious to see like the counter of this, like, what are the benefits of having an audience? Um, Yeah, yeah, it's it's very interesting. And you know, you bring out the bubble reminds me of another thing. So earlier, I mentioned Jamal Murray. So for those who Mm -hmm. don't know, Jamal Murray is a player, he's a point guard for the Denver Nuggets, um, who, you know, fame, you know, he is a decent player. But he's not a great player. You know, he's not like an all-star player who's, you know, (laughs) he he can certainly develop into a great player. Getting out of my Jamal Murray jersey right now. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You know, one of the sort of things that that occurred during the bubble is that he had this incredible explosion in performance in the bubble where he, you know, the Nuggets, you know, did a lot of incredible things during that run, which, you know, some of which we might talk later. But one important thing to note is that Jamal Murray dropped like these massive 50 point games I think like twice during the playoffs isn't that isn't he like literally better than Michael Jordan like in that like time frame oh for sure for sure like I mean like dropping 50 points for any player is a great achievement um doing that multiple times in sort of like the same playoff run is is also incredible um and just the statistics where he was like shooting like um 75 from three in clutch time and things like that he was doing really really incredible stuff and I, I think that part of that might have been there's no uh, audience in the bubble, like Akshara just said. So there's that lack of self-awareness. But I also remember when he was giving interviews in the bubble and he was going through this historic run, he mentioned a lot how he would uh, meditate prior to games and meditate throughout the day. And I do sort of wonder to what extent, you know, that uh, meditation allowed him to sort of empty his mind, you know, decrease that sort of self-awareness and simply allow his natural basketball talent to sort of flow through him and, you know, to make those sort of automatic adjustments and automatic uh, shots and things of that nature. So, yeah, I also think like, I mean, all of my references for this are going to be like either basketball or like BTS or like just things that I'm aware (laughs) of. Um, Right. And maybe there's going to be a little bit of figure skating thrown in there as well later on. But I, one of the things that the self-focus theory also made me think of is like, What is it like for team sports like basketball if you're not playing for yourself? Like we always hear players talk about how they're playing for the team. Like Jokic talks about this a lot. And the Nuggets right now, we slid a little bit. But earlier in the season when we were doing really, really well, a lot of the players were talking about how they're like playing for the team, like playing for each other, playing for the fans. Like it was it was a very like away from the self-focused mode of playing. Um, So I wonder if there's some kind of component of like teamness where this comes in, where if you're playing for your team or say you're playing for your city, or like if you're, you know, you're doing the world cup or something, you're playing for your country. There's a level of like 
you're taking the focus away from yourself and putting it into something greater. Right, right. That is interesting. Um, and one other thing I'll also note, and I'm not sure if we we plan to discuss this later, but one implication of this sort of self-awareness theory of choking is that um, for people who are sort of like already self-conscious or already very much uh, self-aware of their own performance, if you increase the pressure, then odds are their uh, performance isn't going to drop off as much compared to people whose, you know, sort of baseline level of self-awareness isn't as high. Yeah, you're definitely right. And we definitely are going to think of that. Uh, We are going to talk about that. But I think it's good to bring up now because it kind of shows how like intuitive this theory is and how many predictions you can make with it. To go on, so that that is the first theory. It's this theory of self-focused attention. I think in other papers, it's also called the explicit monitoring theory or the self-awareness theory. Um, those are all what we were just talking about. The other main theory is the distraction theory of choking. This one is a little bit more reliant directly on attention, but the idea of this model, which is a bit simpler, is that choking happens because when you're under pressure, you're focusing on task irrelevant cues. You're distracted, like the pressure is distracting. And these distractions can be external, you know, things going wrong in the environment or whatever, or they can be internal. There can be internal cognitive processes distracting you from focusing your attention on the task at hand, which can like decrease performance and lead to choking. It, it The crux is pressure kind of turns whatever task you're doing into a dual task phenomenon. You're having dual task interference. Your attention is split in different places and there just aren't enough attentional resources in your brain to deal with the scenario. I definitely feel this. There's like a quote in the study, uh, highly anxious people tend to be preoccupied with task irrelevant thoughts, which is so true, Bestie. Like there will constantly be irrelevant thoughts happening in my brain when I'm anxious about something. And it is a real task to try and bring my attention back to the, the the question at hand. So this is this is a simpler model than what we just talked about. It's not like an automated process or anything. It's just that your attention is divided, you're distracted. Right, right. And of course, you know, this also makes intuitive sense, right? Like if you're playing basketball and it's a big game, there's a lot of people in the crowd, you know, just the loudness of the crowd, the music that's playing, the, the cheers, the stomping, all that can sort of uh, distract you from the necessary muscle mechanics that you know, you need to perform to make a free throw or, uh, sorry, a free throw or a shot. Also, I think this sort of distraction theory can sort of affect, you know, some players in any sort of sport, they might be concerned about their legacy. So they might mm. sort of have intrusive thoughts where, you know, if I don't perform in this particular situation, you know, what will that do for my career down the line or how will people perceive me? And if you're sort of focusing on that I'm not sure, you know, that might tie in a little bit into self-awareness, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, if you're sort of focusing on the aftermath instead of like what's there in front of you right now, you know, that is also like another example of uh, distraction theory at work, I believe. Yeah. And if if you're on the Lakers, you know, you're worrying about your legacy, but you're also worrying about LeBron's legacy. Like, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> that is, that yeah. is so true. You know, so many players will say like, oh, there's so much pressure playing with him because, you know, you're not just playing for your own legacy, you're playing for LeBron's legacy. So I think you're one of the main, main distracting forces in the NBA is LeBron's legacy. Um, But like you said, there is significant overlap between 
like this distraction theory and this self-monitoring, self-focus theory, like all of those things I said earlier that could increase performance pressure, like an audience or ego, or like you were saying, consequences, legacy, they could increase self-focus, but they could also be distractions, right? And then when I was reading this, I was like, isn't like more self-focus in and of itself a distraction? So I was like, what is the like distinction here or the difference between these two theories? And the studies, I don't remember if it was this first study or the next study we're going to talk about, had kind of this very specific way of, of like carving a little slice of difference between these two theories. And it's how um, attention breaks down in both of them. So we're going back to like how attention is central. So the distraction theory says that choking is a breakdown of structures present in active attention, stuff we have conscious awareness of. So like you're in a dual task scenario, like I said, and your working memory and your attentional resources are burdened because they're split between things. And this is like a conscious phenomenon. So you would assume that it's worse for more mental tasks like testing or quiz bowl like you and I did in high school and undergrad. Um, Alternatively, the self-focus theory is more for things that are kind of proceduralized and like worked into procedural memory or muscle memory, things we don't have conscious awareness of. So things we're not attending to. So like motor programs, like body memories, like the term that Robert was um, talking about, like motor programs and these things are stored in a part of our memory and are activated and just run through like on their own without us having to consciously think about them once they've been like practiced enough, like once you practice something enough, you're not consciously thinking about the explicit movements every single time. It just runs on its own. So right. in self- a paradigmatic example of this would be a free throw, right? Um, mm-hmm. You're uh, you're always going to be a set distance away from the basket. You know, the basket is always going to be the same. The basketball is always going to be the same. Yeah, like everything there, it's it is really pure muscle memory and. You can sort of tell it's it's pure muscle memory because there is a clip out there of Michael Jordan shooting a free throw with his eyes closed, you know, so there, you know, you, you know, it's purely just the fact that he's done free throws thousands and thousands of times and done it. Yeah. Yeah, for him and for like any professional basketball player, like yeah. the process of shooting a free throw is like fully procedurized automatic. And Under self-focus theory, the idea is that there's a breakdown in this automatic process. So let me um, read a quote from our second study. Masters proposed that performance disruption occurs when an integrated or compiled real-time control structure that can run as a unit is broken back down into a sequence of smaller, separate, independent units, similar to how the performance was organized earlier in learning. Once broken down, each unit must be activated and run separately, which slows performance. And at each transition between units creates an opportunity for error that was not present in the integrated control structure. So condensing that, when you're highly self-focused, instead of an automatic process just running fluidly on its own, it's like de-chunked and broken into little pieces because of the external pressure on it. And that causes like the transitions and the gaps between the like individual steps to be more prone to error. So I think that's a very like key distinction between the distraction model and this model, which is why I think this uh, self-focused model is sometimes called the like explicit monitoring model. It, it is 
the distinction is that the distraction model deals more with something with an active, attentive breakdown and not having enough attentional resources, whereas the explicit monitoring model deals with, you know, you have the attentional resources, but they're being used to break up a fluid automated process. So I think that's kind of the key cognitive difference between these models. And so the first study that we're going to look at tries to sort of judge between these two models, right? Like which one is the actual cause of choking? Um, and how is it that we can differentiate between these two models in practice? This is the this is the main experiment done by the first study. And there were a lot of groups involved. So I'm going to go over the logic of the study up top a little bit before we get into the study itself. So the idea is if choking under pressure is caused by like a distraction mechanism, like I said, you're splitting your attention between the task and distractions. If you add an additional distraction, your performance should get worse. That's the prediction that these authors have. However, if choking is caused because of self-focus interfering with an automatic process, then like adding a distraction, like an additional distraction, really shouldn't do anything or it might make performance better. Maybe this is why people will like joke or like distract themselves in high pressure scenario. Um, because it's not that you're, you don't have enough attention. It's not that your attentional resources are low. It's that you're focusing too deeply on your own actions and you're not allowing them to happen naturally. So the, the key is here. If you, you know, add an additional distraction, let's see if performance gets better or performance gets worse. And that'll tell us whether it's the distraction theory or the self-focus theory. And then the other thing they tested for in the study was the thing that you were saying earlier, that there is research that people who have a high baseline of self-awareness are less likely to choke. It's because they're like adapted to this self-focus. And when it increases in pressure, it doesn't bother them as much. So they posit that maybe if you train in whatever task you're doing, if you train in that task with a high level of self-awareness, maybe when it comes down to a high pressure situation, you'll be less likely to choke. So these are kind of like the ideas posited by the studies. In the setup of the study, they had 129 male psychology students. So not the biggest sample, not the most diverse sample, but it's what we got. And they had people do like golf putting, like they had them like putt a golf ball and they had them do it a bunch of times and they like took the average distance from the target. Like the closer you were, the better your performance was. I think they let them practice and like normalized until they could hit 10 consistent shots within a certain distance and then measured a baseline for that. And then they did like a final like performance, like this is the test run um, where they got just 10 putts and then they took the average of that and that was like their score. So within this setup, the first question asked is kind of like a reality check. Like, can we induce choking in a high pressure scenario? So they had a low pressure testing group and a high pressure testing group. So how do they increase the pressure in the testing? If you improved by like a certain percentage amount, you would get double credit for the study. So if you're unaware, I learned this in undergrad, but when you take psychology classes as an undergrad, part of the credit for the class is you have to go and sign up for all these psych studies like they put you in a room in the psych department and have you like click things on a screen or have you like roll a marble through a maze or something and then they like give you a questionnaire and then you just have to do that a bunch of times in order to get credit for the class so the way they increased pressure in the scenario we're saying if you do well you get double credit 
which is actually like a pretty significant reward um, for psychology students. So that that was their like method of increasing pressure. And they wanted to like test to make sure that they could actually get choking in this paradigm. And they found that you did. People would like, you know, they would be training. And then when it got to like their testing time in the high pressure scenario, they'd say things like don't choke or the pressure's getting to me. So, you know, the first main result from this paper is that yes, our study can induce choking, um, which is is good. I love when a study has like a, a a little test to make sure that the study design makes sense. The next question they ask, how do distractions affect choking? So for some participants, they would be distracted during the final testing trial. And the distraction was that in that final like 10 putts, they'd have to count backwards from 100 by twos. So not like the most difficult task, but definitely cognitively a distraction. So at this point, we're at four groups, low pressure, no distraction, low pressure, distraction, high pressure, no distraction, high pressure, distraction. And we're comparing the results of all of them. Am I making sense so far? Yes. I'm with you. Great. So in the low pressure scenario, they found that distraction led to worse performance. So this is, again, another reality check. Like if you're not under pressure, a distraction is bad. Makes sense. In the high pressure scenario, though, stuff gets interesting. The distracted group under high pressure did better than the non-distracted group under high pressure. And that is interesting. So why is this the case? If distraction theory is true, choking is because uh, pressure causes like distraction and a dividedness of attention. So if you're under more distraction, you should get worse. So that didn't happen it kind of leads to the idea that self-focus theory is more true. So the idea is that pressure causes more self-focus and it messes up an automated process. So when you distract under pressure, people get out of their heads. They're not, you know, self-monitoring as much. They're focusing on counting backwards from 100 by twos. And that allows their muscle memory to do their unconscious process uninterrupted. And the results of this experiment show that that's the case, more so than the distraction theory. Very interesting. So so like we were talking about earlier, one of the implications of this self-focus theory is that people who train with more self-focus are less likely to choke, right? So is that how they sort of approached um, how they evaluated the self-focus theory in this study? Yes. So the final question they asked was exactly that. Does training under self-focus alleviate choking? So what they did was they had some participants do their practice run like completely normal, like like I've just described it. And they had another group of participants do their practice run in, like in front of a camera. And they told them it would be recorded and like reviewed by golf coaches who would like look at their form and try and understand how people learned golf or whatever. And so that was like, their way of increasing the self-focus these participants had while they were training. So we had four groups, but now we have eight groups. I won't list them all, but the key kind of distinction here now is that the results showed that the people who had this self-awareness training, like the people who trained with the camera, did way better in high-pressure scenarios. Like they significantly like alleviated this choking phenomenon. And, you know, again, it goes back to our, our two theories and it goes back to supporting the self-focus theory. If choking is caused by distraction, it shouldn't matter how you practice. Like no matter how you practice, when the high pressure hits, you will be distracted and it will be bad. But, you know, if self-focus theory is true and choking is caused by too much self-focus and you train the self-focus so that by the time it hits during a high pressure scenario, you're used to it, 
you should be doing better. And that is what they found. Um, so overall, what this study suggests is that choking under high pressure is because of this increased self-focus, this increased self-monitoring. It's not because you're distracted and your attentional resources are split. Incredible. Well, I mean, now I know the source of why I don't choke in Quiz Bowl. Yeah, (laughs) you're constantly evaluating yourself. No, it's true. Yeah, I I really am. Yeah, yeah. Go on, go on. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of interesting because I am someone with a naturally very high awareness and self-pressure. And I feel like I don't remember if I choked in Quiz Bowl, but... I don't know, maybe you will have, for people who don't know what Quiz Bowl is, which is probably no one who in our podcast demographic, but it, Quiz Bowl is like, uh, it's kind of like academic trivia, but there's like a lot, it, it, there's a lot more like academic questions involved that like, if you like, you got to read a lot and do a lot of like studying and practice for it. So it's like, it's like, you know, if you've seen Spider-Man No Way Home, Spider-Man is doing Quiz Bowl. Yeah, he is, he is. <laughs> They even I, went to some of the same hotels the Quizbowl National Hotel held in. I know. I noticed. I was like, "Is that the Atlanta Marriott? Like what?" Yeah. Um, yeah I, when that movie came out, I had a bunch of people message me. It was like, "Did you know Spider Man's a quiz bowler?" And I was like, "Damn, representation matters." Incredible. <laughs> no, but uh, it, it, this the results of this study are really noteworthy, right? Because it kind of like prescribes two different ways to alleviate choking, right? So you can either train yourself with a high level of self-focus and practice, and hopefully that'll make you less likely to choke, or you can distract yourself during a high pressure situation. And I feel like I see this all the time in like people I look up to. I think so like J-Hope of BTS is uh, someone I like really admire, like his work ethic and the way he performs, but he is like highly self-critical in practice. Like you know, he's like the happy go lucky, like fun sunshine of the group. But like in dance practice, he is like very like locked in, like zoned in attentive. Like there are all these like compilations on YouTube of him, like watching himself in the mirror or the other members, like, like a hawk, like he's incredibly self-critical, but on stage, like you never see that. Like he's just fully like in the moment performing. And I think that kind of matches with this um it's the same with like yuzuru hanyu another idol of mine like he like a figure skater who's like incredibly good he also is like very very self-critical when he's practicing but like there's like this the switch that happens when he goes out to like skate or like compete that like he becomes fully in the moment and I don't know. I, I just I think it's cool to see like the people I look up to like kind of fitting themselves into these models. Did you find stats you want to talk about or no? <laughs> I, I did. I did. I, I, it's, it's very interesting. So I looked up our uh, stats from when the last national competitions in Quiz Bowl that we went to. And what I'm doing is I'm comparing the prelim stats to the playoff stats. And Akshata. Oh, to see if we were clutch players. <laughs> yeah, Akshata, do you think, were you, do you think, were, do you think you, you choked in, in Pace 2017 or not? Oh, in high school? Yeah, in high, um, school, in high school. We're not looking at our college stats. Okay. No, we're um, at high in high school, I think I I think I was kind of clutch <laughs> in high school. I, I'm gonna have to agree. You know, prelims, you drop 38 <laughs> points per game, our leading score. Oh my gosh. And then you bump that shit up to 42. Uh, oh my in, gosh. In the playoffs. So that's wow. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's I mean, just, just <laughs> like I said, just <laughs> gives further ammunition to the uh self uh focused theory um oh yeah so true yeah 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 it's very interesting what about what about what about other members of our team (laughs) Um, (laughs) well i i you know i think parth kota (laughs) 
I, I, <laughs> Shout out. <laughs> okay. I think one of our friends' parts, he's like not definitely much of a less self-focused kind of person. And uh-huh. uh, I don't want to say he choked. His his point, his PPG dropped off by maybe like a point from like 27 to 26 points. Sounds um, like choking to me. <laughs> maybe, maybe. You're, now yours truly uh, bumped from 27 points up to 38 points uh, in, in playoff time. So <laughs> What is it? The Larry O'Brien clutch player of the game? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Dang. Yeah. Wow. I think wow. Uh, Catherine also went up as well. Catherine went up wow. from 20, 25 points to, or 26 points really, to 30 points for a game. So very wow. interesting Look, stuff. Yeah. We were, we were all so clutch. And then Parth was just not that guy. Um. <laughs> I mean, you know, Parth, I, he was consistent. He was consistent, you know? <laughs> I kid, I kid. It was I say just this because he's never going to listen to this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Oh. But yeah, guys. If you want, if you want proof of the theory, there's your proof. There's yeah. our proof. That's yeah. so cool. I think honestly, this is like this is like interesting to think about. Like, what does it mean to be a good clutch player? And I was mm-hmm. going to mention this later, but since we're talking about it now, the like idea of being good in the clutch is like very ill supported in scientific literature. Like, there are some studies that are like, yeah, this happens, and some studies that are like, no, it doesn't happen. Um, so it, it's like not the research on choking is way more like established. Like it's been around for longer and clutch is only recently being like super looked into, but it would be really cool to keep learning more about it and to look at studies about it because we clearly see examples of clutch performance in our real life, like outside of laboratory conditions. The one that like always sticks in my brain is Yuzuru Hanyu at the 2018 winter Olympics. Like my man, like broke his ankle basically like the November before the winter Olympics, which happened in February. Like he had like a really bad fall and I still can't like watch the video of when that fall happened. Like it's like, <laughs> it's personally traumatizing, but it, like he couldn't skate for months. And this was him defending his first Olympic gold medal. Like he couldn't skate properly. He was just like image training. And like, he like, I don't think he could jump quad jumps like until like like the week before or even later of like the Olympics. And like, we didn't hear anything from him. So like we, no one had any idea if he could even skate or walk or anything. And then he steps onto this ice, like during the short program in the winter Olympics, he like takes a deep breath and he nails it and hits a world record. And that's like, you know, the most pressure ever. And he just did it amazingly. Like that's definitionally clutch. I'm sure there are examples in basketball of, of clutch moments that are incredible to think about. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Um, in the interest of time, though, we, we can move on to other parts. We can move that. on. We can move on. Yeah. Um, you know, we will definitely do a clutch time episode in the future. And maybe that one will have a special guest on it. We'll see. So the data we've looked at lean towards the self-focused model of choking. And the study gives us some speculations as to why training under self-focus will like make choking less likely. And what I said earlier is like the predominant theory that it's like just you're adapting to the high focus so that when it comes up in a high pressure scenario, it doesn't bother you as much. The second idea is also interesting in that if you practice with self-awareness a ton, maybe the self-critique and self-monitoring process 
itself becomes automatic. Like maybe self-focus is a skill that can become proceduralized just like motor skills can be, which is like interesting to think of, you know, you think of like procedural memory and like proceduralized skills, you think mainly of muscle memory and things that happen like in the body. It would be quite remarkable to have like a cognitive skill that can also be proceduralized. So, you know, the implication there is that in a high pressure scenario, you're not using active cognitive resources to monitor yourself. It's happening subconsciously and automatically. So it can't interfere with the task at hand which, you know, is like another really interesting theory, but obviously it's like harder to test something and like figure out the details of something this like cognitive. So it was just a speculation in this study, but it's a really cool way that research can go in the future. Yeah, that uh, that is very interesting. It almost reminds me like a little bit, and maybe I'm sort of like mischaracterizing uh, CBT, but it sort of reminds me of cognitive behavioral theory in a sense. Mm-hmm. Where, um, you know, I, I think the goal is to sort of recognize that certain behaviors are maladaptive or bad. And maybe through like a process of self-critique, you know, you sort of internalize the idea that you shouldn't perform certain actions, right? I'm not sure how clo- how good of a link that is. But that's sort of like what it made me think of where it's like, um, or even just sort of like self-criticism normally can sort of become automatic where if you do something... And you're just sort of like, no, already in the back of your mind, like, oh, I should not have done X or Y thing. Instead of sort of like going through like this process of sort of, I don't know, beating your, yourself up about it or something like that. It's like you recognize the behavior and then you sort of act either act to correct it or you sort of log that it was sort of like bad behavior in the moment. Yeah, I don't yeah, know, I think I don't that's, know how, how interesting that's, the link that is. I think, I think there is a link there because like, at least in my experience through cognitive behavioral therapy, you can, I guess, proceduralize or like make certain thought patterns more automatic. So like, Mm -hmm. say that you are extremely, you know, self-critical and have a very negative self outlook. I'm not talking about anyone in particular, but (laughs) say that that's where you were before you started cognitive behavioral therapy, but you practice having more self-positive thought. You practice, you know, pushing these negative thoughts and behaviors out of your way. Like you said, you practice doing this like cognitive work. And the more you practice it, the more it just kind of becomes internal. And Mm -hmm. the more it kind of becomes something that happens naturally without you having to consciously be like, okay, let me sit down and write down three things I'm grateful for. Like, (laughs) like at some point, the more you do it, the more it just becomes internal and proceduralized, which is cool to have that happen in a cognitive phenomenon. Yeah, that's very interesting. I think I didn't understand that when I first started. I was like, why am I just writing down like nice things about myself? Like this is pointless, but like it worked. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. we allow it. (laughs) So this second study we're looking at is by Baylock and Carr. And as always, all of our sources are linked in our show notes, which are linked in the description of whatever podcasting app you're using. And you can definitely check those out if you want to learn more, especially with this source, because there's a lot of detail in this source that I'm going to just skip over. If you want to subscribe to our Patreon, one of the tiers there will allow you to have uh, detailed access to my notes. So to talk about this second study, one of the first things it tackles is this idea of expertise affecting performance. So thus far, we've been looking at people who have, you know, been trained really highly in a task. But there is this question of like, what do we mean by expertise? What does expertise do for us? 
there's some background knowledge and previous research that says that there's this phenomenon called expert amnesia, where it seems like experts just don't have a good memory of like their skills in the moment. Like I recall, like whenever I see like interviews or like post games, when you ask Jokic, like, how did you make that read? He's like, I don't know. I just passed it. (laughs) Or like he, he doesn't give a ton of detail when you ask what happened in the moment right and so where does that come from is a question that people ask that's true that's true but i will say there's also there's a flip side to this where you know sometimes expert amnesia isn't necessarily a thing yes i will get to that there it's this paper like posits this idea and then talks about maybe counter examples to it but before we get to those counter examples let's get a little bit more specific so the two types of kind of expert knowledge or expert memory this paper looks at are generic knowledge which is kind of like the overall prescriptive like schema of like how should a skill be done like how ought this skill to be done like what is the ideal version of this skill like the general knowledge And then the second type is episodic knowledge or like episodic memory, basically, which is like autobiographical knowledge. So it's like, oh, like, here's what happened to me in this moment. And this is what my experience was like. It it makes clear sense. And there's evidence that as expertise increases, generic knowledge increases. Like, of course, as you become more of an expert at something, you know how the ideal scenario should go. But there's also evidence that episodic knowledge decreases with expertise. So why is that? The idea is that, like we've been talking about, highly practiced skills get automated. So they're controlled by like proceduralized automatic processes. And so when you're doing the task, the like structures that are controlling the task are not interacting with your attention systems. And in order for your memory to remember something, you need to be attending to it. So you need to be paying attention to it which does not happen with these like proceduralized tasks. It kind of just happens a little bit outside of your attention. And then when you're asked to remember it, you're like, what happened? In contrast for novices, when you're like initially learning a skill, you pay a lot of attention to it. You have to, like you're cognitively paying attention to it. You're working on it step by step. It's in your like attentional processing. So when you ask a novice about like their experience doing a task, they have more episodic memory about that in particular compared to experts. So that's kind of this idea of expert amnesia. But like Christian was saying, expert amnesia is not generally, it's not a rule 100% of the time. So there, a lot of these studies come from like chess grandmasters. And it's like, I, I swear, cognitive scientists love doing experiments with chess grandmasters because they got the wildest brains. But these players, like masters, grandmasters, are so good at remembering the board to high detail. Like you can ask them like three years ago, what was the board like in this game? And they'll know it. Like obviously, you know, the the I'm talking about like really like high grandmasters, but even just like masters and people who are good at chess will remember the board and you ask them to like recreate a scenario and they have it, they have it down. And then even like Jokic, like I said earlier, when you ask him like how he made the shot, he'll be like, I don't know, I just passed it. But like before he says that, he'll be like, I had this guy in the corner and I had this guy at the rim and I had this guy behind me. Like he knows where everyone is on the floor before he makes the read. That's, you know, of course, he is particularly known for having really good court vision. But, you know, that kind of counters this idea of expert amnesia. And the way they like rectify this discrepancy is by pointing out that like, you know, the chess grandmasters or Jokic and stuff like this 
have really good memory for stimuli that are relevant to the situation, not the like decision process of the task itself. So, you know, chess players remember the board, Jokic remembers where everyone is on the floor, etc. You could interpret like experts having high memory as having high memory for relevant stimuli, but they still have amnesia through the process. Like chess masters will say the best moves just like popped into their head when they see like a board or when they see a scenario that the, the the moves will just pop into their head. Whereas like novices or people who are training in chess will have a more like step-by-step, like maybe algorithmic, or maybe just they'll have a more explicit thought process where they're thinking through their thought process and they'll be able to tell you about it as opposed to experts who kind of just like, it just happens for them. Um, right, exactly. Like when I try and place chess and I'm a complete novice, basically what I'll do is I'll try and evaluate like the potential for every single possible move on the board and like counter moves if I've, you know, just got infinite time. But like Akshay was just saying, like for the ultra high level chess players, they'll know like automatically what the best move is. Exactly. And they won't be able to tell you how they got there. (laughs) They'll just be like, I just know. I mean, this is so this is all true. But there's also like conflicting data about uh, experts having a good memory for stimuli related to their tasks. I think there was a study where they had people do like a word searching task where there was like an array of words, like a bunch of words, and they had to pick out words from a certain category. And they just trained people a lot till they got really good at this. And then they asked them to remember like specific words, and they couldn't do it. So this is a very like specific example. But, you know, if experts or people who are really skilled at something have good memory of like stimuli relevant to the task, like why is this the case? Why? Why don't they seem to have this memory? So the theory is that like experts have good like episodic recall for stimuli for things that are more cognitive. So we've been talking about the chess example. I think the Jokic example is interesting because basketball is a physical sport. But when you're like reading, when you're reading like where people on the court are, that's a very cognitive thing. Like that's a lot of like decisions and like analysis you're doing in your brain, less in your body than like say shooting a free throw. So the idea is that like the expert amnesia comes more into play for things that are physical or proceduralized and less for things that are like highly cognitive. So that like kind of suggests that maybe these types of tasks are represented differently in mental structures, which is a really interesting thing, like cognitively and philosophically that we can't get into or research because we don't have infinite time. But it is a, a cool idea. Yeah, yeah, it is. I, I mean, I think about this in the context of, of quiz ball a lot, where I think, you know, quiz ball obviously is entirely, you know, cognitive. Except for think... when you hit that buzzer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, except <laughs> when you hit the buzzer. And I do think there you don't really see a lot of expert amnesia, you know, like, it's almost a stereotype of this sort of like annoying player who explains why they got a particularly oh. like good buzz, like when they get like a good buzz or something like that. And it's like, they'll like explain all the mental connections that they made uh, between a clue and the answer. Um, so, you know, again, that's, this is sort of me um, thinking about how, you know, this plays out intuitively, like in real life and things that I've done. Real life, quiz bowl. <laughs> yes, quiz bowl, yes. The realest of, of real life activities, you know. Honestly. Yeah, so the crux of like the information in the introduction to this study is that expert amnesia probably exists for motor skills, maybe exists for cognitive skills, but does deserve more study. And so there are four experiments in the study, and the first two of them deal with this concept of expert amnesia. So the first experiment was 
uh, this was another like golf putting task type deal. So what they did was they compared the general knowledge and episodic knowledge of novices and like expert golfers. And I think the experts in this scenario were like golf team members. Uh, they compared golf team members, non-golf athletes, and then undergraduate psych students with no golf experience. Or, or athletic experience. Or athletic experience, yes. Just like, you know. Yeah. Basically me in undergrad, just like a psych student who needs a credit for the study. Um, It would have been fun if I got to do golf. I just, you know, the only things I got to do were click things on a screen. Or one time they gave me like this like cardboard maze with like a marble in it. And I had to like run the marble along the maze into some like target goal. Um, That one was fun. The coolest thing I ever had to do was I had to make up stories like on the spot. Oh, that sounds fun. Based off of like a picture or something like that. And they were like, oh, create a narrative of this. I was like, Wait, oh, that that's, sounds that's really fun. Cool. Yeah. Damn. Yeah, no. I, like most of mine were just like, here, click on these things on a screen. And I was like, okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so they ran this experiment with like varying levels of expertise. And again, they did a reality check. They made sure that like, you know, the experts did better at the golf task than the novices did. So their golf task was like valid in the sense. It's not like, you know, sometimes when you do take something to the laboratory, it like messes up and you get some weird result. Like experts did better than novices, which is good. Um, And then what they did was they questioned everyone to see their memory of the experiment. So for general knowledge, they asked about the steps of a good putt and like what makes an ideal like golf putt. And then for episodic knowledge, they asked about like, They asked each person the details of the steps they took when they were putting. And there's a lot of detail in the study about what types of knowledge they tested for in experts versus knowledge, like the quality of the knowledge, which groups cared about like assessment and planning versus mechanics and outcomes, which groups had mental imagery involved. I'm not going to get into all of that because it's a lot, um, but I encourage people to check out the source or check out our Patreon um, if you want to hear my thoughts on all of that. But the upshot is, um, so experts gave longer and more detailed general descriptions compared to novices, and experts gave shorter, less extensive episodic information. So like it supports this idea that experts have more general knowledge, but have amnesia when it comes to personal memories of the tasks. Um, Yeah, so the knowledge that experts have about their field is like more accessible in a general sense, but not in a personal sense. Actually, the general information that experts have had a lot of like planning and like mental imagery in it compared to the novices. And it supports this data that experts tend to spend more time like evaluating and deciding on a move compared to novices. But that's again all for general information, not for specific personal episodic information. You know, that part is just not in their attentional processes. And then another interesting thing they learned about novices is that the novices that had more detailed memory actually performed better on the tasks. Like the ones that could recall more had better performance. And it's consistent with this idea that if you're initially learning something when you're a novice, the task is controlled by conscious processes. It hasn't been proceduralized yet. It's in your attention. So the attention systems are active. But as you train more, they become less active. So it it shows in these like novices, you know, because their attentional systems are active, they can remember more. So this is kind of like the first study was setting us up to like figure out this connection between like expertise and memory. 
In experiment two, they basically re-ran experiment one, but they had two groups, one of which they didn't make any changes. They just ran the same experiment again. But the second group, they replaced the like normal putter with like a weird S-shaped, like funny shaped putter or like the, the handle was like weird and the putt, like it was just a strange shaped putter. And the goal was to disrupt the experts. So they didn't have this like proceduralized skill of training with this putter they were like brought back down to the novice level. So theoretically, their memory and recollection should be closer to novices since they have to like pay closer attention to the task now because they don't have this like automated memory of it. So they posited that there wouldn't be as much expert amnesia. And of course, the novices should show no difference. They're still novices no matter what putter you give them. And the results showed... First of all, the results supported the first experiment. Like the everyone who they gave the regular putter to... like it did the same thing. So I'm glad they were able to replicate that. Um, But the revealing thing was that experts using the funny putter gave way more episodic description than any group, like even the novices. So this is kind of like the inverse of expert amnesia. Like they had a lot of memory for their personal experience of the event. Like when you disrupt their well-established skill, they give a lot of episodic information. So it it kind of suggests that like when you interrupt an expert's proceduralized process with a novel constraint because of their expertise, like when they go to attend to it, like a normal novice would do, they have like way more, they are like paying way more attention to it and have way more detail. It seems like the expertise actually helps them retain information when the situations change and novel things occur, which is like a really like, I think that's really salient. Like that's, I think that's one of the reasons why experts in in any field really can be like so good at what they do is like the ability to adapt to novel constraints is I think in like a lot of things, I think that's like a hallmark of expertise. So it's cool that this result came through in the data. Yeah, I would, I would would tend to agree. Um, I think it's, it's interesting. It's, it's most interesting to see even beyond players, you sort of see it in like coaches and stuff like that. You know, Mm. a lot of times the coaches that can go the farthest are those that can react to novel constraints like say a player goes down or something Mm -hmm. like that or the opposing team is using a particular approach that they haven't used before and that is sort of new um if you're able to sort of quickly adapt and and change you know oftentimes that can lead to more uh success right exactly we've talked about expertise and performance and choking And all of these have been like physical motor tasks, this golf putting task. And the question these authors asked in their next experiment is whether choking in this way only happens in these motor tasks. Can it happen in a more mental task? Obviously, there's like real world examples of this. We talked about testing anxiety, um, but also like giving a public speech, teaching in front of people, you know, theater. Like there are so many examples of like not like a motor task. So the task they looked at in this experiment was something called the alphabet arithmetic task. So that's basically you would ask people questions like A plus two equals what? And the answer is C um, because C is like two down from A. And, you know, you can get more complicated with this arithmetic, but that's like the crux of it. You can do this in like a rule-based algorithmic fashion where you're like actively counting. But the more you've like trained, the more it kind of becomes this like, it becomes like chess positions where you kind of just you're used to the mathematics of the alphabet and you are able to give the answer. It's kind of been memorized. And in like high levels, like finding a solution to whatever problem you're presented in your brain is kind of this like race between this algorithmic process and this like 
an implicit memorized process. Um, and it's, it, they like altered this a little in the, in the study and they like did little like, weird little changes to it, which are in my notes, but I will not go into in the interest of time, but either way. So the information that you're working with to do this alphabet arithmetic task is stored in your working memory and involves your active attention system. So that's different from these like motor tasks that we've been talking about that are not accessible in your active attention systems because they've been like put into muscle memory. So in the experiment, participants did two of these tasks, the golf task and then the alphabet arithmetic task, and they had three different training conditions. So we'll go through what happened in each training condition. The first one was the control. They had two groups. They trained in normal conditions. One learned the alphabet task, one learned the golf task, and they did a, you know, a high pressure, low pressure test and to, you know, see if they could induce choking. I think the pressure condition was different in this study. They did like, instead of like, uh, you know, you get more study credit. It was like, oh, you're actually paired with a random person. And if both of you increase your performance, you both get $5 and your partner already did it. So it's on you. Like that was the pressure, which is different. And I think maybe, I don't know, this goes back to my thing of where like, how do social things, how do social factors tie into this? Like, I wonder if like, playing for someone else in a social way is different. But either way, it's like more pressure. And they found that choking actually only occurred in the golf task and not in the arithmetic task. And that's like kind of interesting. Like you, even in this like arithmetic task, like we wouldn't get choking. Like you had the same performance really in the low pressure and high pressure scenario. And there are some like good questions about the validity of this data. Like how good did people get at this arithmetic task, really? Like, how expert did they get at this? And I've cut them for time. But it is like, you know, that's the key difference in this first part of the experiment is that, like, they found choking in golf putting, but not in alphabet arithmetic. So that was, that was the first training condition. And then the other two non-control training conditions were they trained under a high distraction versus training under high self-awareness. So this is like the same logic as the first study. You're testing to see if adaptation happens. So if choking is a result of distraction theory, if you trained under distraction, you should be adapted to it and you should not choke. If choking is a result of self-focus, if you trained under high self-focus, you should be adapted to it, you should not choke. So it's the same logic as before. So they had four groups in the study. They had a distracted golf training group, a distracted arithmetic group, a self-focused golf training group, and a self-focused arithmetic training group. Um, I think my favorite group was the self-focused arithmetic training group because the way they practiced under self-focus for the arithmetic task was they had the subjects videoed and they told them that their videos were going to be shown to math professors, which is like so funny to me as someone who interacts a lot with math professors and has to do math in front of them. It is genuinely like terrifying to like have to do math in front of a math professor because you're like, oh, like I don't remember how to do anything. Um, so definitely that does from personal experience increase self-focus. And the results they found were that in the distracted training group, so anyone who trained with a distraction, I think the distraction was something like they had to like they were hearing a tape recording and they had to like speak aloud when they heard a word that was in the tape recording. So anyone in this distracted group, no matter if they were doing golf or arithmetic, their performance was worse. Um, so this distraction was just bad. It was distracting. It did not 
there was, it did not help in choking or do anything to choking. Like it did not cause any adaptation or anything. So like, it just is another like push that this distraction theory is probably not the cause of choking. Um, the self-focused training group actually showed, so in the golf situation, the people who trained with self-focus and then did golf did not choke as much, which was the same thing as the previous study said. But the people who did self-focused training and did the like alphabet arithmetic tasks, like they had no change. So like in effect, what we have learned is that one, we've confirmed the first study. So choking is more likely to occur in procedural tasks like golf putting, not necessarily in alphabet arithmetic. And two, when choking does occur, it's an, a result of increased self-monitoring because you saw we had the adaptation with the people who were more trained in self-monitoring. Those were the main takeaways of this study. And they have theories as to why they got these results, but I'll get to them later. So we've gone through three studies or three experiments, mm -hmm. I should say, in this one study. Uh, what about the fourth study? What did they, how did they further change things up to study this phenomenon in the fourth study? So thus far, we've been looking at choking in high pressure situations when expertise has been achieved, like after lots and lots of practice. But what about high pressure applied early in practice, like before things have been proceduralized, kind of like novices, but like in general, we want to look at high pressure before any expertise has come into play. The idea is that in like the first two experiments, we talked about how novices, their skill acquisition is not based on automatic internal implicit subconscious processes, their skill acquisition is conscious, focused, attended to. So according to self-focus theory or explicit monitoring theory, which have we've been like repeatedly showing is the main theory here, high pressure applied should be good for novices, actually. It should help them focus in more and give them more attentive awareness to what they're doing. Um, right. And this this ties right back to the modified drive theory that we were talking about earlier, right? where they predicted the exact same thing. Right, exactly. That's a good tie-in. I didn't even consider that. Like when you are focused, when you have this high level of self-focus as a result of pressure, it does tie into this like you're locked in more, you're attentive more, and you're zoning out kind of inattentive, useless things. So that does tie back into like what we talked about at the very beginning. So they did this study just with golf putting this time, not with like an arithmetic or cognitive task, because that's the task that they were able to show like choking in. So they focused just on the golf task um, because it has this procedural component to it. And the results they found match the predictions I just gave. So early in practice, pressure is good for performance like our explicit monitoring self-focus theory predicts. As the skill gets proceduralized, as they gain more expertise, pressure stops being helpful. Like we said before, this is the thing where pressure causes more self-focus and breaks up the proceduralized process. And they also did the same thing where like, oh, if you adapt people to self-focus, can you prevent choking? Like the fourth or fifth time we've done this. And they found, yeah, that that works. So this is replicable. The, those were the results early in practice. The late in practice, pressure results were the same. Um, ch you get choking late in practice unless you adapted to it with more self-focus. So it, it did, it confirmed what we thought. It confirmed the theory. One like new thing the study illuminated though is this kind of, I don't know, foot off the gas pedal type results 
where, so say you like do some practice, but you're still like a novice, but then you like have an early pressure test and you do really well because like we said, early pressure to novices can be really good. Immediately after that, they showed a significant like drop off in performance immediately after this early pressure before more practice kicks in and you get more like proceduralized and expert at the behavior. It like kind of reminds me of like the Denver Nuggets right now because we were doing really, really well in like January, February, like earlier on this year. And like we had a lot of pressure and we did really well. And then we just like took our foot off the gas pedal and like went on this like four game like losing streak slide like it was like really troubling um but it, I, it, I, oh oh go on go on i mean i there are many questions as to why this happened to the nuggets but it does like kind of fit into this theory of like when you have early pressure applied and then you have that pressure like when you have early pressure applied it's good but then you remove that pressure you get this like rebound effect where it gets worse before it gets better yeah, I'm going to disagree with you slightly that the Nuggets' troubles fit the foot off the gas pedal theory. I mean, I think the theory makes a lot of sense. Um, and the only reason why I disagree is because I think that um, the Nuggets started their losing streak when the sort of conversation about Jokic being an, an MVP sort of reached okay, its yeah. zenith. This is like we're getting into like such the weeds of basketball. But I, yeah, I think I also, yeah. I think I also agree with you. Um, but this was like the first thing that came into my mind when I saw these these data. Yeah, yeah. I think I think a better example is uh, one of her friends, Kellen, who couldn't make it today. Um, he says, you know, one of the worst things that have in basketball is a 15 to 20 point lead, right? Because, you know, you have right. that 15 to 20 point lead, uh, like the uh, Portland Trailblazers will oftentimes have. <laughs> you take your foot off the gas pedal, you think that you're sort of in the clear, that you're able to win the game. And then, you know, three minutes, five minutes go by and that 20 point, that 20 minute lead is has evaporated. And then suddenly, um, you know, you're you're being potentially overtaken or it's like the pressure is, is like back on and you're somehow performing worse than you were before. Yeah. And at, at that point, like Damian Lillard is dropping 60 points in a five point loss. Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Kellen, this is what you get for bailing on us on the recording. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I, maybe the Nuggets aren't the best example, but I, this isn't this is a, a phenomenon that does happen. This like taking your foot off the gas pedal, it would be cool to see like more explicit research done into directly this. So with all of these results, there's a lot to think about. So let's think about the implications of these data. One of the things the second study kind of posits are like general properties of tasks that are susceptible to choking. So the study proposes three main properties. The first one is task complexity. And by that, I mean like how many like steps and how involved a certain task is. So we've been saying that like choking is caused by high pressure, bringing too much self-focus to a proceduralized task. And it like de-chunks this like process that's supposed to be fluid and continuous. You need a you need a process that involves multiple steps for this to be like beneficial. There is thought that this like, you know, when when they did like the alphabet arithmetic task and showed that there wasn't choking, the authors proposed that oh, maybe because that's maybe because that task is like a one-step retrieval, like what is the answer here to this question? That's not like a it's not like quizbowl or like chess where there's like a lot of steps to come to a decision. Maybe that is like too simple of a task for choking to happen. So task complexity needs to be there. 
Another thing that needs to be there is what we've been talking about, this like proceduralization process, a process that can get highly automated with practice and a task that can work outside of memory and attention. So like sensory motor tasks are perfect for this, but there could be more cognitive tasks that have a degree of like automatization, automaticity to them. Um, And then the third property they talk about is less a property and more this just like explanation of the difference between choking and cognitive and motor tasks. Like thus far, we've only showed choking and motor tasks, but the authors wanted to stress that that probably isn't because like the fact that they are sensory motor tasks makes it like more likely for them to choke. It's just that a lot of sensory motor tasks have a high degree of complexity and steps and can be proceduralized. But there are cognitive tasks that have those processes too. So examples of these include algebra, geometry, computer programming. All of these can become highly proceduralized in experts. And they I think the study authors are pursuing this. And this is a little bit of an old study. So maybe there's an update that we should look at. But um, I definitely agree with this. Like calculus for me is like a big one, a big task that I think has been proceduralized, which is like wild for me to say, because I really struggled with calculus in high school. Like I was having like anxiety attacks and like getting like D's on tests. Like it was, it was difficult for me. But because I'm in a program now where I have to teach students calculus it has just become like a fully automated process for me like i can just do calculus without thinking about it when i'm on my own if i'm like like writing or doing like work for the students like writing problems but like if i'm in front of the class and someone asks me a question i'm not prepared for there are instances where i like blank i like choke i forget how to do the problem properly because of um i guess now i know it's because of the pressure you know causing more self-focus and disrupting an an automatic process, all that stuff. So, you know, there's this idea that like choking can occur in mental tasks and maybe we need to go back to distraction theory for these tasks. You know, we've shown that distraction theory isn't the case for sensory motor tasks, but maybe they could be true for, you know, cognitive tasks. Like this is extra true for testing anxiety, right? Like when you're worried about the test and it makes you worse at the test. Um, yeah, yeah. Or or you're worried about um I'm actually not sure if this idea is replicated, but this idea of like uh choking on tests kind of reminds me of like stereotype threat. Right. Where um, you know, people who are in uh, you know, underrepresented minorities in academia and you know, let's say they're faced up with like a standardized test like the SAT or the ACT, even though they're like perfectly like intelligent enough to like do the test well, when it sort of push comes to the shove, they perform less well than they could because they're sort of worried about perpetuating particular stereotypes about groups. So I don't know if that's a self-awareness type thing or if that might be a distraction thing, but I think it ties into this discussion where, you know, maybe for, um, maybe, oh, I guess it would be a distraction thing where, you know, for these cognitive tasks, maybe distraction really is sort of like the key factor at play there. Yeah, it definitely is something that more more research needs to be done on. Um, It's harder to like study cognitive tasks because, everything is happening in the brain and you do get a lot more data about like golf putting or shooting free throws or whatever. And then the cognitive tasks you can get data about are like this alphabet arithmetic task, which are like maybe a little bit too simple to capture the phenomenon we're actually talking about. So it is, it's a difficult thing to do um, for cognitive scientists and people creating studies. And so 
you know, at the end of this study, they did a little bit of like, they did a little bit of what we're doing right now, like extending and like talking about other work that was done. They did cite the Lewis and Linder study that we talked about ahead of time. They mentioned, you know, like we talked about earlier, uh, a mild cognitive distraction during a high pressure moment. So not during like the training, like the second study talked about, but like in the first study, we had the distraction during the high pressure moment. Um, and we showed that that can actually alleviate choking in a way. You know, the counting backwards from 100 by twos doesn't like disrupt the automatic process. And this kind of reminds me of like grounding techniques, at least. I mean, to go back to like therapy things, like when you're like amped up or like elevated or, you know, focusing too much on yourself, like something that therapists will recommend you do are grounding techniques. Oh, like go through all of your five senses and list all of the things you feel in each of them. Like, you know, take deep breaths by like actively counting the breaths. Like these are, these are ways of doing like a distraction in a high pressure moment that could help. Other research that they cited as like another avenue to go down is that supportive audiences were associated with unexpected choking in like procedural trials, like even if they were supportive, which is like interesting. You know, that's it's this thing of like why, like when you're in an empty gym, you can like shoot free throws and shoot shots like easily. Um, it, it's again like a thing that I'm curious about. Like when in what instances is having a supportive audience helpful, and in what instances is it is it harmful? That's like a a distinction there that I'm interested in. And then, you know, just to like round this out, there's always the question about like what specifically is happening in the brain during like a high pressure, like choking moment, really, like what pathways are active and how do they affect the pathways that are more like automatic and like tied into like the procedural process? And like, how does practice and expertise affect this? Like, the you know, the in, the general questions of like, how do the brain activity cause the, the mental phenomenon will always be there. Um, mm -hmm. So, we, you know, there's a lot more work to be done in this area. Yeah, absolutely. You have any final thoughts? Uh, I don't think I have any final thoughts, honestly. I, I think you sort of brought up everything I would have brought up. So, well, you, you said like the positive effects of an audience psychologically. I think, mm -hmm. I, I, I think, um, I don't know. I think, you know, the positive effects of, a, of an audience, I think that'd be very heavily dependent on like the ego of the particular person, you know, like an egotistical person or a narcissistic person. They're more likely to sort of feed off that energy from the audience. Mm. I don't know um, if I agree with that. Maybe I'm thinking less in the realm of sports and more in the realm of performance, like uh, singers. And yeah, yeah. So okay. this is another thing where it's like field dependent, right? Because right. like, performers like actors musicians dancers will clearly feed off of an audience in what i don't think is an egotistical way it's it's a different type it's a social way mm -hmm. and i wonder if in sports you know you have some of that but you also do probably have some of this egotistical stuff mm -hmm. i'm not saying that i don't think artists can be egotistical because i do think that is the case um but my brain was going in a in a more like social like I want to do good for social reasons and like either like express my art reasons, but there is a like, Oh, like a supportive audience, like feeds my ego. There is that. Mm -hmm. That is true. Right. Right. I think that's the episode for us, but you know, Akshara, this episode, we've talked a lot about choking and, you know, hopefully one day in the future, we can talk about the opposite of choking. We talk about that clutch time performance. So audience stay tuned for, an episode in the future where we talk about clutch time performance.
Yeah, I think that'll be a really uh, engaging episode for us in the future. So definitely stick around if you want to hear that. But for now, thank you all for listening. We hope you enjoy this episode. We hope it expanded your brain a little, gave you some skills to maybe apply next time you're in a high pressure situation and you don't want to choke. If you see a topic you want us to discuss, tell us what you think of the show or even just say hi. You can find us on Twitter. Our handle is at brain underscore expanding, or you can email us at the address expandingbrainpodcast at gmail.com. Or you can do what Robert did and just like DM me on like Twitter or something when you have an episode idea. Um, If you're interested in any side content like my detailed notes or our cut of jokes and extra thoughts that didn't make it into the main episode, you can head on over to patreon.com com slash expanding brain and throw us a couple of bucks there if you do we would really appreciate it you can also find us on our personal twitters i'm at art by akshata and i'm at blk wittgenstein and as always show notes and every mentioned link are in the description so check those out if you want to learn more thanks again for listening this has been the expanding brain podcast see you guys next time bye see you next time